0: Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. During the presidential debate in September of 2020, Trump equivocated when pressured by moderator Chris Wallace to denounce white supremacy and militia groups. Instead, he famously declared the Proud Boys should, quote, stand back and stand by. Immediately after his failure to denounce white supremacy and militia groups, Trump went on to state that Antifa is, quote, a dangerous radical group. Let's listen in. I'll tell you what.
1: Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right wing problem. His this own is a left FBI wing, director this said a left-wing right, wing um, problem. This is a left wing problem. I'm a white supremacist. Antifa's an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it, Mr. Speaker. Not kidding. militia. That's what right. his, FBI, idea. his okay. FBI director Gentlemen, said. Well, we're then gonna, you know what? No, He's no, we're done, we're done, sir. Everybody, we're moving on to the next one. We're moving on to the Everybody in your administration tells you the truth has a bad idea. Can I tell you what? You have no idea. Is Antifa is a dangerous radical. All right, radical gentlemen, group. we're now moving
0: on to the Trump and, and Biden records. With them. They'll
1: overthrow you. When a president,
0: seconds. I'm going to ask a question. To help us make sense of this debate, we are joined today by Dr. Anna Meyer, assistant professor in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham. Her research focuses on terrorism and how policymakers conceptualize, define, and understand terrorism. Her current book project, The Idea of Terror, White Supremacist Violence and the Making of Counterterrorism, uses interviews and fieldwork to investigate the persistent lack of policy responses to white supremacist violence. Professor, welcome to Impolitik.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jeff.
0: So our first question is simply, what is Antifa? Is it an organization, a philosophy? or an idea, as President Biden suggested in the clip we just heard. How would you define, conceptualize and even explain Antifa for those listeners who may not be familiar with it?
2: Sure. Good question. So I think Antifa is best described and I think members of various anti-fascist movements would agree is that it is best described as a movement. There is no overarching anti-fascist group. Uh, There isn't an organization that dictates anti-fascist goals and ideology. Uh, It's a movement, it's a broad movement. And it, in the United States, really derives from a group called Anti-Racist Action, which was active in the late 80s, early 90s, and that grew out of the hardcore punk scene in the Midwest, Um, some anarchist organizing that was happening in the Midwest and proceeded to spread to various organizations nationally. Now, that said, I would stress that these organizations are all very autonomous from one another. They might share a broad ideology, um, but there isn't, again, an overarching anti-fascist organization. Um, It's a term for a broad set of ideological commitments to anti-racism, anti-fascism broadly defined, so against government oppression, especially along racial lines, um, against efforts by particular government entities to suppress free speech, freedom to protest, those kinds of things. It is largely a leftist movement, um, which I think comes from the fact that it grows out of anarchist, socialist, et cetera, organizing, um, but is committed to broader anti-fascist ideals that I think a lot of people can commit to, which is sort of where you see The label being much more broadly applied in the aftermath of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2016. And then, of course, uh, the racial justice uprisings following the murder of George Floyd in summer 2020, where a lot of whom we might call run of the mill liberal or leftist protesters or people who were out protesting police brutality adopted the label of anti-fascist or anti-fa for themselves. And I think that's a commitment to a broader anti-fascist ideology, not necessarily the ideological tradition of groups that might identify with Antifa. Um, But the distinction there is quite semantic, I think. Um, And we can trace this movement to this sort of larger historical ideological genealogy that comes from anti-racist action and from some older groups in Germany as well, but also think about this sort of broader commitment to anti-fascism that I think a lot of people, whether they identify with the movement or not, can find some common ground with.
0: So is there a difference, and I don't know, but is there really a difference between um, those who uh, ascribe to Antifa either as a philosophy or as an independent cell uh, in Europe versus the United States? Are their goals very similar or are there any sort of characteristics that might differentiate between them?
2: The sort of starting points, I think historically are different. And I would stress that a lot of the anti-fascist groups that exist in the United States and Canada nowadays, while they may share terminology with European groups are not organizationally linked to these historical groups. So the term Antifa actually comes from a group called antifascista anti antifascist action, easy translation, um, that was active in Germany in the early 1930s. And it was a project of the communist party of Germany, um, or the KPD, that originally was sort of set out to be both against the Nazi Party and other liberal socialist democratic parties, basically any party that was not pro-Soviet. Over time, that changed. Um, And before World War II, um, anti-fascist action in Germany was really focused on work working against the Nazis um, and militantly working against the Nazis. Um, World War Two happens, that all goes away. Um, but some groups spring up again after 1945. And there is to, d- to this day, a relatively robust anti fascist network in countries like Germany and in other European countries. That's not super closely linked to uh, US and Canadian groups, at least not in terms of Like, they're not part of the same sort of organizational exchange. There are certainly ideological similarities, um, but you've got groups in Europe really coming out of a communist tradition, and you've got groups in the U.S. coming out of an anarchist tradition, some of which is also communist socialist, um, but not necessarily. I do think I'm splitting hairs a little bit here, um, but since we're going to go a little bit deeper into the trajectories of these groups, that's sort of how I would characterize the differences.
0: So one of the ironies here, I think, of Antifa is I think you can categorize it as leaderless resistance, which, as you probably know, is somewhat ironic. If that's an appropriate characterization, is somewhat ironic because that was a term that was coined by Louis Beam, mm-hmm. who was obviously a Klansman and, and leader of the Aryan nation. Um, would that be a, 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 an appropriate characterization of Antifa, of leaderless resistance, that they, it's not this coherent hierarchical structure, but they have these independent cells that certainly do organize independently?
2: Hmm. So I'm trying to get past my initial, and you noted this, my initial sort of um, dislike of the term leaderless resistance, because it comes from the white nationalist tradition. Um, And we can think about that particular concept um, of something being an organization or movement be much more loosely networked um, without thinking about necessarily the genealogy back to Lewis beam. Um, I mean, I think that there are certainly similarities in thinking about this as a relatively leaderless movement with some common goals across different organizations. I'm not sure that I would describe them as cells because that to me suggests an overarching organization. Um, So for example, if you were thinking about a group like Al Qaeda having cells in various countries, there is an Al Qaeda central, that is to some extent, setting overall ideological tones, to some extent, directing activity in other places. Um, And that's just not the case uh, with anti fascist groups and with um, movements that identify with Antifa. Um, So you could think of like, if there is anything overarching, it's ideological commitments um, that broadly anti-fascist activists agree upon. Um, but there's no like, conference of anti-fascists that sits down every year and is like, here are our ideological commitments. It's much looser than that.
0: Yeah. One one thing that always strikes me is I, I think on the one hand, it's it's very similar to eco-terrorists of the early 90s, mm-hmm. um, yeah. if that would be a more appropriate characterization.
2: Yeah. No, I think that's a better parallel. Um it's not perfect because there you're thinking about like groups like the Animal Liberation Front, the Earth Liberation Front that are easily identifiable. And I would struggle to think of very many core anti-fascist groups that have that level of national recognition. Um, Rose City Antifa, which is a group in Portland that was the first group in the U.S. to really adopt the moniker of Antifa specifically, rather than being generally anti-fascist, anti-racist. So there are some groups like that that are more largely recognizable Um, but you're right like there is sort of the broader eco terrorist movement from that period where you've got lots of different groups with similar goals sort of working together sometimes not um might be a better parallel um but i do think anti-fascist movements on the whole are a little bit looser
0: still so when we try to identify and define Antifa. And there's certainly these organizations um, such as Rose City, but there's also, you know, really interesting groups that associate with Antifa, such as the, the Raging Grannies in mm-hmm. and, and Oregon. And I, I, I don't know if you've heard of them, but it's essentially, you know, grandmothers united around the principle mm-hmm. of anti-fascism. And I think that it makes it really challenging for, and this kind of dives in, I think, into your work in terms of, you know, how do we, in terms of counterterrorism policy or extremism or policing, define these groups and identify them? And in can we put them in these neat little buckets or bins mm-hmm. of extremism? And I, I think, you know, that's just an example that it's very difficult to do that.
2: It is. And I think it comes down to a difference between how we legally, officially think about terrorism and extremism and how we define those things, and then more discursively, how we understand them um, based on how we're socialized and the political environments that we exist in. So, for instance, legally, terrorism is a tactic. It's a particular kind of violence used by particular kinds of people for particular political ends. Um, And so if we define terrorism as a tactic, then any particular group could use it, Um, whether that is a left-wing group, a right-wing group, uh, an Islamist extremist group, the state, um, which is, and I bring up the state because that's sort of where that starts to get a little bit uncomfortable with discursive everyday understandings of how we understand these particular tactics or this category of violence, Um, because in practice, and this is really what I find in my work as I, of analyze how different government entities respond to violence that they consider terrorism and how policymakers really understand these threats Um, intuitively before you get to sort of the legal categories that we have to apply terrorism and extremism are really not associated with particular tactics they're associated with certain kinds of people uh, and certain kinds of ideologies and so if you say for example that Islamist extremists are terrorists, that is, at least in the United States, a formulation that isn't often challenged. Um, it goes against actual legal definitions of terrorism, where an Islamist extremist group could set off a suicide bombing for political purposes, and that would qualify as a terrorist attack. But they could also engage in like community organizing provision of healthcare, as a lot of these groups do in countries in the Middle East. And that does not fit our definition of terrorism necessarily, but because we have this image in our mind of terrorists as equated to Islamist extremists, that type of activity might still fall under our thinking as terroristic. And I think if one were to apply particular formulations of terrorism as a tactic to um, far left groups, then you start to see that distinction breaking down even more. Like, for example, when you're thinking about groups like the Raging Grannies and other types of activists and protest organs in places like Portland and in other anti-fascist protests across the country, like the activities that those groups are engaged in are usually not um, the use of violence for a political purpose. Um, The right to protest is enshrined in the Constitution, and everybody has that right, and that's not terrorism, at least not if we don't define like particular groups as being terroristic. That's a somewhat confused rambling answer, um, but it's sort of things that I think about in my work every day.
0: No, no, absolutely. I, I, I fully agree. And again, I, I know you and I both come at you know studying terrorism from a different kind of perspective, uh, but I fully agree. Um, and it's something I try to emphasize as well is that not only uh, should we not define terrorism in terms of tactics, because there's a whole variety of tactics, but I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is defining terrorism in terms of outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I always emphasize this fact. And uh, unfortunately, I had a, a, a did a presentation uh, uh, with uh, a bunch of folks from the Department of Homeland Security. And it's a mistake that they were making is conflating um, outcomes of terrorism in terms of its definition. I said, you have to remember nothing has to happen for there to be an act of terrorism, right? Nobody has to die. No bombs have to go off. There could be no economic damage, right? Just simply the act of threatening a civilian population to achieve some sort of political aim is sufficient, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's always wrong to say that um, tactics define terrorism or outcomes define terrorism.
2: I agree. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It is very difficult to get people away from that, um, because those are the legal structures that we have to work with, um, are defining these things in terms of tactics or in terms of outcomes. And where I think a lot of policymakers tend to get stuck is that their personal intuitions and understandings of what terrorism is. If they were to turn on the TV and they saw that a bomb went off somewhere, what flashes in their minds do they think a terrorist attack occurred or a bombing occurred or a crime occurred? that sort of socialization is very difficult to overwrite, at least initially. You can then get down the line and say, well, okay, we have to apply this legal definition of terrorism and that is or is not helpful, but to what extent does that combine with, contradict those intuitive understandings? And so that gets real complicated real fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I I don't know that it's as simple always as saying, And I'm sure you've seen this, too, in talks that you've given, like simply saying, like, okay, we can't define this in terms of outcomes. We can't define this in terms of particular tactics. And yes, you have the laws that you have to work with, um, but it's not helpful. Um, And even people who really want to try to think about terrorism, extremism in different ways, really struggle to do so, um, both because of the institutions they're embedded in and because like. It's, it's a skill. It, it takes a lot of practice. I, when I was a graduate student, it took me a long time to get out of the habit of using terms that I don't really like to use anymore because I don't think they're helpful. Like I try not to say terrorist group. Um, I don't think that's helpful because groups do all sorts of things, um, only some of which are, are terroristic. Um, but, but those sorts of phrases and and the ideas behind them are so deeply, deeply ingrained, and it's really hard to disconnect that even if you want to.
1: And so what is the difference between Antifa and the black block?
2: Okay, um, so the black block, I would say, is a tactic. Um, and so for listeners who might not understand what this is, um, the Black block refers to groups of protesters who show up at anti-racist, anti-fascist protests, and they're dressed all in Black, um, and they often work as a block, um, whether physically to sort of keep police or other actors away from particular places or such, or they just sort of all stand together and they look like a mass. Um, the Black Bloc or I'll say black blocking, although I don't think that's an official term, um, is a very common practice uh, at broader leftist, anti-fascist protests. Um, there is not an organization somewhere called the Black Bloc. Um, there are lots of groups that use this sort of thing. Um, basically, it's a tactic.
0: You know, one one other kind of defining characteristic that I think a lot of people misconstrue is, dismissing the black block, Antifa, or, you know, this whole kind of philosophical, if you will, um, approach as generically anarchist, Mm -hmm. And you you see that, especially in 2020, in the summer of 2020, uh, you see that in the media that these are anarchists. And that, even on the basics of political philosophy and theory, I mean, that's fundamentally incorrect.
2: Yeah. So some are. um, And the anti-fascist tradition comes out of a lot of anarchist spaces, or at least anarchists were quite fundamental in forming a lot of initial anti-fascist groups, movements, etc., in the Midwest back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, But not all anti-fascists are anarchists, and not all anarchists are anti-fascists. And especially as we see the label being applied or claimed more broadly by all sorts of leftist protesters, um, that I think we really have to question, like, yes, there are some historical linkages, of course, between anarchy, um, anarchists, and anti-fascist organizing. At the same time, the movement is much broader than that. And it would not be correct to say that these are two synonyms describing the same sorts of people
0: let's go back to tactics and i know we've already picked on that quite a bit what then are the tactics of antifa as a as a whole and i know it from my understanding it's extremely broad Mm -hmm. and i i think i read a study at one point that a scholar had carefully cataloged every activity quote-unquote activity or or um, uh, tactic associated with Antifa, uh, all these events, and he found that roughly like ninety percent of what Antifa does is is actually doxing mm-hmm. or revealing um, identifiable information of uh, right wing extremists and neo Nazis and 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 fascists et cetera online. I mean that is essentially the bulk um, of what Antifa supposedly does. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. No. Like that aligns perfectly with my understanding of a lot of what the movement does. I think that a lot of the publicity that other tactics such as protests and such have gotten in recent years is a result of Unite the Right and responses to that and the racial justice uprisings of summer 2020 and responses to that. Um, But historically, doxing, even though that term would not have been used in the late 80s, early 90s was a really foundational component of anti-fascist ideology in groups like anti-racist action. The idea that if you are a Nazi, a neo-Nazi, a white supremacist, um, that society as a whole deserves to know who you are and you deserve to face repercussions for holding those really awful beliefs. And so whether that is simply revealing the identity of somebody behind an anonymous account, which is more of a modern tactic uh, as anonymous accounts become possible on things like social media, um, all the way to publishing um, information about where particular neo-Nazis, white supremacists live, um, phone numbers, email addresses, as those become a thing throughout the 90s. Um, But really emphasizing that white supremacists, neo-Nazis in the minds of anti-fascist activists have nowhere to hide uh, and must publicly confront um, the consequences of their beliefs. So the ideology goes. Um, so, yeah, doxing is a huge part of tactics used by these groups. Um, and you're right also that like there's a ton of other tactics that, that groups like this use, um, many of which are quite familiar to any sort um, of organization or movement that has ever protested, uh, especially on the left. Counter-protests at rallies by groups like Patriot Prayer, like the Proud Boys, um, more generic far-right types of rallies, Um, participation in organic anti-racist rallies, um, provision of mutual aid in communities. Violence is not officially endorsed um, by most anti-fascist groups, um, but it does occur sometimes. Uh, It's usually spontaneous. And so that would be a case where I would question the. Applicability of at least legal definitions of terrorism, um, but violence does happen sometimes. Um, but I would say, in the broader spectrum of what um, anti-fa and anti-fascist groups do, it is comparatively rare, especially compared to far-right organizations that Antifa is often working against.
0: So, I, I actually want to pick up on that because, again, you and I, I think, approach uh, national security differently in Mm -hmm. terms of our kind of views of national security. But again, um, it's very interesting. I think we do agree on that last point about definitions of terrorism being applicable to Antifa. I I would not, from my reading and understanding of the legal definition and even theoretical definition of terrorism, would not apply it to Antifa. Uh, And if we were to specifically focus on the tactic of, uh, you know, punching Nazis at rallies, right, which they, uh, you know, a small percentage of what they actually do, but it gets a disproportionate amount of media coverage, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would not consider that as an act of terrorism, as much as conservatives and even some city um, uh, activists um, try to label Antifa as a a terrorist organization, I, I think that's not appropriate. I, I would, however, suggest that it might be an act of extremism, uh, meaning uh, that in ter- terms of terrorism, targeting a civilian population to achieve some sort of broader political objective, that's not going to happen if you're punching somebody uh, at a counter protest rally, right? But that would be an act of extremism and a sense that you are targeting them for their beliefs. Um, would, would you agree with that kind of argument that it's not terrorism sucker punching is more akin to extremism? That's
2: interesting because the way that I think about extremism, which comes out of work by people like JM Berger, um, and other people working on white nationalist conspiracy theory, far right, et cetera, kinds of groups is that extremism is broadly understood as a descriptor of ideology. Uh, and so in reference to what we might consider the mainstream, an extremist would be somebody who holds beliefs that are counter to that, um, which encompasses a wide range of things. In the United States, a socialist is technically, definitionally an extremist, which I think is very interesting now living in Europe, where that is not the case, uh, because the positioning of the mainstream or the center is different. Um, We might then distinguish between extremism and violent extremism. So people who act violently upon beliefs that are deemed extremist, depending on who decides where the center or the mainstream is. Um, so if we're thinking about an action like an anti-fascist protester punching a Nazi or throwing a milkshake um, at a far-right troll, um, letting my political bias get in there a little bit for a minute, um, then Is that an act of extremism? I I don't know because extremism to me, it references beliefs rather than the actions that one takes on behalf of those beliefs. Um, It is certainly um, a particular protest tactic, I I might say, Um, whether it's productive or not, I think is a separate question. Um, But I would agree, like it's definitely not terrorism. Um, Is it extremism? if one ex- considers extremism a kind of action as opposed to a belief system, perhaps. Um, but that just may be a place where we think about these things differently.
0: That, and yeah, I, 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 struggle with it admittedly too. And I feel admittedly uncomfortable focusing on the punching of a Nazi at a kind of protest rally, because again, it's only a small proportion mm-hmm. of, of what they do. And um, I hate to perpetuate, you know, this kind of, disproportionate attention that the media gives on it just as we're doing in this conversation. But I I think it's critical because this is, you know, where a lot of uh, folks are trying to establish policies in reaction to Antifa. And I think if you're going to develop any sort of policy, you have to be able to appropriately define it. And and in that vein, I want to be a little bit more provocative then and say, Mm -hmm. okay, if we both agree that it's not terrorism, it may or may not be defined as extremism, Can we, and again, just to be provocative, Mm -hmm. define it as a hate crime? In a sense, a generic definition of a hate crime is targeting uh, another citizen on the basis of race or religion or other ground, including political ideology. Would it be considered a hate crime for Antifa to target somebody based on their ideology of being a fascist? Ooh.
2: So, okay, I'm going to sort of think through this in real time. Um, because my very strong instinct is to say no, but I want to think through why I believe that. Um, so when, okay, so the formulation of is targeting somebody because they are a fascist a hate crime. I mean, that's getting very, it's running up against free speech protections, both the right to say whatever you want, um, within reason. and then the right to contradict that or come back against that. Um, And the questions of what counts as speech um, is throwing a punch speech. Uh, I don't think so, Um, but some courts would argue that um, physical action can be a form of speech. Um, I think the reason that the sort of hate crime formulation bothers me in this particular context is because hate crimes as a legal category exists to protect marginalized people with less power. And generally speaking, the targets of anti-fascist activism and occasional anti-fascist violence are white, um, linked to the political establishment in some way, and often men. And in the United States to this day, white men, especially on the more conservative right, are not a marginalized or oppressed group. And so in that case, the hate crime label feels a little bit inappropriate because it's not, like there are power dynamics here that don't reflect themselves in a particular anti-fascist activist targeting a member of, to use very broad terminology, uh, the ruling class, um, privileged groups, people who do not face systematic discrimination and marginalization in U.S. society.
0: Let's actually kind of build on that a little bit. And so you, you, you say that you, you, you're studying, your focus of your research um, is to study what it means to quote unquote, know terrorism when we see it. And then more importantly, who gets a side, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, this is, this is certainly trying to define it and pin down Antifa. This is certainly in line with, if, if, with your research, Mm -hmm. Um, can you kind of expand on that in terms of, you know, what you think it's important for listeners and then more critically, perhaps uh, policymakers to understand then about how we define uh, terrorism. How do we, um, um, you know, kind of classify Antifa and then, subsequently formulate appropriate policies.
2: Sure. So let me start specifically with the Antifa example and use that to sort of broaden out to this question of how we intuitively understand terrorism and the implications of that for policy. So I think this conversation, should we designate Antifa as a terrorist group? Should we think about Antifa as a terrorist group? Really started with Trump's assertion on Twitter of all places that he was going to do this. Um, And officially, he can't do that. Uh, No government entity can do that uh, for two reasons. One, in the United States, it is not possible to designate purely domestic organizations as terrorist organizations. It is legally not possible. Um, It is also not possible in this case, because as mentioned, Antifa is not a group. (laughs) And so you can't designate an entire ideology or philosophy as terrorist. That is a First Amendment violation. So officially, you can't do anything about this. You can't legally designate it as terrorist. That doesn't stop people, of course, from talking about it as terrorist or extremist. And by it, you can mean Antifa, you can mean any other type of politically contentious violence or activism. Um, Unofficially, this is a very complicated question. Um, At the end of the day, The state is the organ that determines who is and isn't a terrorist. And we can break that down into particular agencies, particular officials within those agencies, but state actors in positions of relative power with a vested interest in perpetuating state institutions as they currently exist, for every reason from job security to it's easier, um, that's sort of how terrorism discourse and how we think about terrorism works in relation to the state and then who is the state? What sort of power structures exist within the state and who do they privilege? Uh, And so the sorts of organizations, movements, philosophies, et cetera, that we sort of intuitively understand as terrorism become those that threaten um, the sort of security, sense of identity of the state and those people who exist within the state. In the United States, this is historically extremely racialized. Um, and also ideologically biased insofar as to this day, the right, the conservative right in the US has been traditionally closer to the seat of power. And so groups on the far right, even as we start to think about them more as fitting perhaps within this terrorist box, it still is a bit more uncomfortable and there's a lot more resistance to it, even if tactically they look the same, which is one reason I don't feel that the tactical definition of terrorism is very useful. Um, So to circle sort of back around to the anti-fascist example, are anti-fascist terrorists? It doesn't seem to be the case that that is true. If we think about this in a tactical definition, if we try to apply the term terrorism in a sort of unbiased, objective kind of way. But at the end of the day, Unfortunately, uh, your, in my opinion on this, doesn't really matter uh, because at the end of the day, it's the state that decides who is and isn't a terrorist entity. And I think if we're going to really think about particular human rights implications of counterterrorism, counter extremism policy, more equitable application of these policies, we really have to get to the root of the category of terrorism, which, broadly is political contention that challenges the established power structures within the state, whether those are racial, classed, gendered, religious, ideological and other respects. Um, And so breaking down what is and is not threatening there sort of requires changing fundamental power structures and composition of government institutions within the US. And that is a much larger and much more contentious Political project than simply we need some policies that'll help us go after the white supremacists, uh, which is also important to be clear. Um, but whether that happens within a counterterrorism framework, I think, is a much more complicated question.
0: So let's let's hypothetically say, you know, if we set aside those larger uh, institutional challenges mm-hmm. um, and put that aside, and let's say that um, this administration or any other future administration. Uh, calls us up and says, uh, Professor, uh, what would you suggest we do in terms of homeland security or counterterrorism policy or any sort of policy uh, recommendation would you make uh, vis-a-vis Antifa? What would you uh, advise um, the administration?
2: So based upon the conversation that we've had here today and just broader analysis of anti-fascist activism, Antifa doesn't belong. In the counterterrorism space, it just doesn't. Occasional acts of violence that may seem premeditated or that have larger consequences, if we're going to need some sort of state response to that for public safety, then that could happen through any number of avenues that are not the counterterrorism space. Securitizing this issue and putting it within that space as terrorism, as this form of violence that we have constructed as the most extreme, the most threatening, given the highest level of social opprobrium, that just doesn't seem appropriate. If the state is worried, this administration or particular government agencies about particular anti-fascist movements, about anti-fascist protests potentially turning violent, I think a more productive course of action would be to look at reasons why those protests have sometimes turned violent. And systematically the reasoning in pretty much every instance is because the protesters or activists that Antifa is there to counter protest against are far right activists who show up armed, who show up ready to cause trouble. And I wish that we would take that side of the story more seriously and think about how to reduce far more prevalent violence, rabble rousing um, sort of provocations on that side of things than worrying about potential anti-fascist violence that in all likelihood is not going to occur unless provoked by the far right, to which we should be paying a lot more attention, both in counterterrorism spaces and in other policy spaces as well.
0: Sorry. So I want to close in the sense that I actually reached out to various Antifa sells if you will directly Mm -hmm. um emailed a lot of groups saying hey would you like to come on this podcast uh talk about your perspective talk about your ideology uh and address potential criticisms that um folks have of your philosophy or your tactics and um to put it bluntly most of them told me to fuck off (laughs) and again i i get the sense that you know they are not very pleased that i'm interested in having an intellectual and academic conversation. And I have to admit that that was very frustrating and disheartening. And it makes me kind of think about the bigger issue. I think the quote unquote organization or ideology has is that they definitely have the moral high ground, right? I, I, I think most of us at least can all agree that, you know, opposing fascism is normatively immorally, um, a, a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I think they've lost kind of the, the media narrative or the um, marketing narrative to more generic sense of, uh, of how they publicize and present themselves um, by having the stance of not willing to even engage in an academic um, and, and, you know, a serious conversation. And I, I feel that they've lost, they potentially lost some of that, you know, moral high ground by, by doing this.
2: So without knowing the specifics of who you reached out to uh, and such, I suspect there might be a couple of things going on here. Um, One is that anti-fascist activists and movements, as you well know, have a history of being portrayed very negatively in the media and by government actors. Um, Of course, this podcast is really neither, but any sort of affiliation with the state more broadly or with the establishment more broadly is, can be viewed quite negatively. And I think sometimes for very good reason, because these groups are not often taken seriously there and their broader ideologies and philosophies are not taken seriously. As you said, I think it is normatively unquestionable that opposing fascism is good. But what that actually looks like in practice can be very uncomfortable for a lot of members of whom I might call the establishment most broadly conceived. Um, And so responses can often be, if not entirely misrepresented, very chilly um, towards anti-fascist activists. And so it might be safer for some of these people to simply not engage with interview requests from people they don't know. It could take a lot of time to build up trust uh, in talking to members of these communities because to be a little bit blase about it, they've been burned before. At the same time, I think that sort of the openness to having these conversations is important to some extent. Um, and although it can be quite dangerous sometimes for anti-fascist activists, especially members of that group who are part of other marginalized identities who are not used to being treated well by members of the establishment, um, like that can be quite scary in some really profound ways. Um, I think the ability to have conversations with people who are genuinely interested in listening can be very productive. Um, so I think reaching out to these groups, even though you didn't get the response that you wanted um, in, in a respectful manner, like is not inherently a bad thing. And I'm not surprised that you got shut down.
0: To that point, you know, it's I think we can all again agree that, you know, opposing uh, fascism, um, is extremely important, especially in the contemporary era when fascism is on the rise, democracies are on the decline, uh, what's known as democratic backsliding. It's, it's frustrating for me in the sense that I, I I would hope that Antifa would be a little bit more, and I, again, I understand that they don't like this kind of capitalist notion, uh, but their public relations campaign needs to be improved. And I think that I would like to see them engaging in the public uh, a little bit more because it's necessary. I, again, I think they have the moral high ground, but they're losing that public relations narrative. And it's at a time that's so important uh, to counter this growth and right-wing extremism today.
2: And if I may devil's advocate that ever so slightly, um, There are an incredible amount of anti-fascist publications or even more broadly, leftist publications, um, both formal websites, magazines and such, but also forums, zines, um, community events, those kinds of things that can feel quite isolated and that the broader, I'll keep using the term establishment, the broader establishment doesn't engage with or doesn't consider as seriously as say an op-ed in the New York times, um, or, a more publicly appealing Twitter thread, um, or or something of that sort. And I think that is there probably a middle ground there somewhere? Yes. And also, folks who are really interested in learning about these movements could read some anti-fascist publications, um, or even not going all the way down the rabbit hole, um, but some publications more on the left um, that are perhaps not as well known, but are quite prominent within leftist circles and have quite large followings. Um, and I think like when we talk about a balanced media diet, the sort of mainstream dichotomy that we're talking about there is like somewhere on the Fox news side of the spectrum and somewhere on the MSNBC side of the spectrum. And there's like, somewhere in the middle of a sweet spot. And that is a very limited view of the overall media spectrum. And there is so much more, on the left and also on the right, but in here are my political proclivities, we don't need to read the Breitbarts of the world, um, but so much more on, on the left that is out there. Um, and so while fascist groups could do more if they wanted to, to publicize their writings at the same time, they are out there and widely available on the internet. And we could all do more if we're curious to read them
0: so Professor, let's close. Is there anything else that you would like listeners to kind of know about Antifa or uh, perhaps uh, something that you would like to emphasize that we haven't discussed so far?
2: I think seriously engaging with anti-fascist ideology requires challenging a lot of prevalent ways that we describe things and, and policy solutions that we think are sort of the default. Um, and so it's quite easy to say that, oh yes, I am against fascism. I don't think fascism is good. Um, And I think that as we discussed, like normatively that is pretty unquestionable. It becomes much more difficult then when we ask the questions of what is fascism? What does that look like? Um, And in, in what ways are policies and institutions that we might consider more mainstream, less obviously fascist things like for example police institutions Um, in what ways might those contribute to particular orientations of fascism in what ways might these be really oppressive in some cases and i think that is where there is a lot of friction between people who might say generally oh yes i'm anti-fascist and people who are really deep in antifa and in anti-fascist movements is how do we consider the state as an organ is the state as an organ inherently oppressive, in which case, structural transformation becomes the imperative? Or are there recoverable aspects of the state that simply need to be reformed? And I think um, those are questions that those of us who are maybe a little bit closer to the mainstream really need to deeply engage with and really think through. um, Because otherwise, we're not truly understanding what Anti fascist ideology, at least to the people who have developed anti fascist ideology, what that actually means, both in terms of beliefs and then policy solutions.
0: Well, Professor, this has been, for me personally, quite enjoyable. Uh, I hope the listeners enjoyed it as well. And again, you know, talking uh, with somebody who has a different theoretical perspective on an issue, but Interestingly, that we arrive at similar conclusions, uh, I, I found that really uh, fascinating and, and just absolutely enjoyed this conversation. So uh, thank you for joining us on in politics.
2: Thank you for having me Now, time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt.
0: I think one of the important considerations of of this this episode is you know, one, you know, what Antifa does, um, that, you know, a very small percentage of what they're actually doing is, you know, what's garnering media attention and, you know, sucker punching Nazis at, you know, protest rallies. Uh, most of what Antifa does is, is doxing, um, revealing, you know, uh, personal identifiable information online. And I think if you view Antifa, uh, for some, if you view Antifa in that lens, it kind of changes the perspective of individuals and how we consider Antifa a terrorist organization, uh, what they do, whether or not it's a hate crime, or even if it Antifa is a, uh, a a movement for social justice.
1: I mean, when you think about it that way, it's kind of like a you know like a Facebook group, right? um you know doing all the doing all this doxing work and using the internet to you know pull out this information and, and to out people. Um yeah. seems much yeah. more to me like a social networking group, you know, a group of people on Twitter, right? Than this threat to the Republic, um, one way or the other. I mean, I, it makes me even wonder, right? I, I still walk away from this going, is Antifa a thing? Right? Does it exist in a cohesive enough way to call it Antifa?
0: Yeah, because you you have these groups, you know, around the country that are organized under Antifa. Rose City, for example, Uh, every major city uh, has some sort of, you know, relatively coherent, you know, organization in sense that, you know, they have a media presence, they have a Twitter account, uh, they have a website, they have an email address. On the other hand, you know, whether or not it's a hierarchical structure, you know, not necessarily the case, and that's by design. Um, And so, you kind of come away, I think, as the challenge that we talk about is how do we actually pigeonhole and identify uh, Antifa. But, you know, the challenge in and of itself speaks to the challenge of counterterrorism policymaking in that you can't one legally define it as a terrorist organization and two it's just it's just not structurally possible in terms of the, the policy domain.
1: Yeah I think that's a great point about you know about terrorism in this case. And I mean we we still have this question of like, is Antifa effective, right? Um and, and it's an important question for for terrorist studies because you have to say, well, if I organize in this kind of way, if I'm this loose, right? This flat of an organization, um, then then can I be effective uh, in, in ways other than what, you know, Antifa is doing? And, and really is Antifa being effective in driving the conversation anyway? I mean, I'm just, I'm just not sure. I'm just unsold on Antifa as a threat because I'm unsold on Antifa as an effective organization.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a journalist who wrote, you know, how do we understand different groups uh, in society today? Uh, extremists on both the left and the right, and he says, in order to understand these groups, you have to divide uh, and separate their means and ends. And for Antifa, the ends are quite noble, right? Um, to the eradication or opposition to fascism. I think they have the the the, the moral high ground there. Um, then you have to unpack their means to achieve that end, right? And I think some would agree with the ends, but disagree with the means, such as using political violence uh, at uh, at protest rallies. And I think that's where uh, Antifa is really shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, and again, referring to it as an organization, whether or not it exists, but you know, Antifa as a whole is, is kind of shooting itself in the foot when it it, it does that. It's playing into the hands of, of right-wing extremists who point out, you know, the the violence of the left and that we need to label these organizations and these anti-fascists or anarchists as terrorists. And um, and I think
1: they're doing themselves a disservice when they pursue these means. Yeah, I totally agree. But I, I go back to my comment before is I don't think there's a themselves that's there in the first place to harm, right? This is, this is a Reddit sublist. And, uh, and yeah. so, you know, who, who are they in, in some cities they decide to do Nazi sucker punching and in others they don't. Right. right? And is, is Nazi sucker punching really political violence. Um, and, and so I, I just think it's a, it's a bunch of people who are first and foremost, I think, uh, anti-authoritarian let's put it like that. Uh, whatever the authority is in some cases. Uh, and you know, and, and then there are many different things after that. And so Antifa in Portland is very different than an, Antifa, you know, in Kansas City. Sure. Um, and they share some stuff. And so I just, I, you know, I think that their background noise, I think that they they are one of a number of different movements, right? Um, you know, I, and I'm going to get in trouble here. To, I'm not, I don't mean to link them, but I'm going to say them in the same sentence, right? Things, groups like, like BLM is a movement, right? Mm-hmm. Antifa as a movement, the Greens or or environmental, uh, you know, liberationists and terrorists, right, as a movement, all sort of create this background on a canvas. Um, But what's painted on top of that background are the real Mm -hmm. unified groups the you know, the Democratic Party or the, you know, the Green Caucus of the Democratic Party or... Um, you know, BLM as it exists as a, as a movement to get specific people elected into office in, you know, Cleveland. Right. Um, and so these groups are really important, but their effect on the atmosphere and on the politics of the United States is so widespread and so diffuse really is to be hard to measure.
0: And I think that's unfortunate. Um, I, I think there is an opportunity, an important opportunity. And, and you know, like I said in, in, in the interview is, you know, I think they have the, the moral high ground, but they're losing the PR campaign and, and the, that they don't want to speak to the media. They didn't even want to speak to us. Right. I mean, we yeah. reached out to a lot of these, you know, supposed groups and or individuals associated with Antifa and nobody uh, wanted to talk to us, uh, even as academics trying to have a serious conversation And, you know, I think there's a space and an an important area of uh, social discourse that they can fill and they're just not doing it uh, effectively.
1: They're anti-authoritarian. We're (laughs) authoritarians right here. Right. We have we have some power in society. Right. We have these these letters behind our name, whatever they mean. And I think they they militate in general. That's probably the only thing that I would I would suggest in my observation is common to any of the, you know, the subgroups calling them Antifa. Are calling themselves Antifa out there is that they are deeply skeptical of all forms of authority, whether it's academic authority or government authority or right-wing or left-wing authority. Um, one thing that helps define this group is sort of this libertarian ethos, which connects them to some of the right-wing groups too.
0: Uh, well, I think you, you're absolutely right, Matt. Uh, I do want to thank everyone for listening to this uh, episode of Impolitik. Please be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes, and please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. And until next time, thank you for listening.